Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. What does it take to start a war? When can a nation lawfully respond to an attack with military force? These are questions that the international community generally knows how to answer for a traditional attack with traditional forces like armies, airplanes, bombs, and missiles. But there is no agreement, and so far there have been only limited efforts to reach an agreement on whether or when a cyber attack is an armed attack. Although American leaders have publicly reserved the right to respond kinetically to a cyber attack, an issue that has become more acute in light of Russia's war in Ukraine, no such attack has yet led to such a response. No one has said exactly where the red line is. Perhaps no one can say. Clear definitions would certainly help, both to help potential victims plan and to warn potential aggressors of the consequences they would face. But who should draw those lines? And is it possible to agree on them? Our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Walsh, has been considering these issues about cyber attacks and military force and joins us today to discuss them. Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Walsh is a U.S. Army Reserve Judge Advocate and former Associate Professor of National Security Law at the U.S. Army JAG School. As a civilian, he has 10 years of experience prosecuting a variety of crimes, including cyber crimes, at the Las Vegas U.S. Attorney's Office. He's currently a student at the U.S. Army War College, class of 2022, and we're delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Lieutenant Colonel Walsh. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. So um, I want to start on a a basic level. So you're a lawyer, so we always want to think about basic principles. And so under our current understandings of the laws of war, when does an armed conflict begin? That's a great question. So the the modern framework of when a war starts is in the United Nations Charter. And the UN Charter talks about, instead of war or, or armed conflict, it talks about use of force and armed attacks. Mm-hmm. And so every nation that signed up to the UN Charter, and almost every nation in the world has, they made a promise and they acknowledged a right. The promise is that they will refrain from using force or threatening to use force against the territorial integrity or political independence of other nations. Mm-hmm. And the right they acknowledge is in Article 51. It says that every nation has an inherent right of self-defense if they're a victim of an armed attack. Mm-hmm. And so while there's some dispute between use of force and armed attack, everyone agrees that if a nation is a victim of an armed attack, they may respond with military force to def- in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Well, and and this this gets into an interesting question about you know what is a cyber attack, you know, what what is what counts as a cyber attack, and um, is even the phrase cyber attack appropriate? Now, if I can a little divergence here, because I, I meant to ask you this question as well. Uh, 
states can engage in espionage against each other. And that espionage can involve low-level use of violence. It can involve low-level disruption or perhaps even high-level disruption of government functions. Um, and yet, generally speaking, if I, if I understand it correctly, right, our understanding of the, uh, the red line for armed attack is espionage is something that states do against each other. Um, but does not necessarily lead to war. In fact, instead, if you end up catching the spies, you trade them or send them back to the other to the other side, um, or prosecute them. Or prosecute them, right? is right. a crime in every nation. Yeah, and often yeah. they're used as bargaining chips and trade. But, but uh, you know, when the as a lawyer, because I spent time as a prosecutor and you know in military law dealing with war, I try to have a dividing line between crime and war, and so. Right. Espionage is clearly crime and not war. And clearly crime and not war. So when does when does cyber activity become war? That's a great question. And the the phrase we use to describe cyber activity makes it very difficult because we call it a cyber attack. And an right. attack in a military setting means something very specific. Yet when we use the phrase cyber attack, we actually are very, very broad. Some mm-hmm. people might refer to it you know, when their passwords for their email account is stolen. Uh, some might refer to it when they're the, a denial, a distributed denial of service attack is launched, you know, that takes down a website. Uh, those would clearly not be something that would start an armed conflict. It would only be the most serious of cyber attacks. And there have been uh, examples of very serious cyber attacks, uh, both theoretically or in testing and also in real world, you know, cyber attacks can cause things to explode. There was, there was uh, one of the first things that did, they experts caused a generator to explode by launching a cyber attack on it. Uh, they can cause dams to fail. They can, there's been, you know, damage to nuclear facilities. Uh, and so they can also be used in conjunction with military force to facilitate a military attack. And so, Clearly, it would only be the most serious of cyber attacks that could start a war. Right. But the issue is we don't know exactly where that line is. Right. Because when you say the most serious, because that once again, we're in, a, we're in some interesting squishy territory there. Are we saying cyber attacks that have they have to have uh, physical consequences in meat space for them to be serious? So in other words, does something have to blow up? Um, or if I just if I shut down... Um, your electrical power grid, uh, or that's one thing. But what if I just take down all of your government's computers? I mean, considering the considering how we work with IT in the U.S. government as it is now, maybe some people might actually would consider that a favor if their uh, computers went down for a little bit and they didn't have to pretend they would work. But but that's where we get into that question: is is it does a a cyber attack that would require an action? Is it is it measured by the effects that it has? Um, on the, say the level of authority that it hits, or is it uh, by the effect that it has uh, uh, in terms of the actual casualties that it causes? It, it, that is the ultimate question there. And so there, there's been some effort to try to come up with a definition of when a cyber attack is an armed attack. Mm-hmm. And the first and obvious one was to look at the effects. And mm-hmm. so that the first effort to to define this issue came from a group of international law experts who got together and wrote a book called the Talent Manual, which was a handbook on how international law 
applies in cyberspace. And so in the Talon manual, they, they defined what a cyber armed attack was. And their first step was we have to look at the effects. And they said, if the effects of a cyber attack are equivalent to the effects of a conventional armed attack, then it should count as an armed attack. Mm-hmm. And so that makes sense. But, but, you know, that was in 2013. And you and I can come up with all kinds of different ways where a cyber attack can cause a significant amount of harm without causing any explosions or right. deaths, right? right? What if you just turned off, you know, a carrier group's ability to detect an incoming attack or the United States' ability to detect if there's a nuclear strike coming? Just turned it off for a half an hour, right? right? That's not, there's no effect from a conventional attack that would do that. And so there's got to be a, a bigger a more robust answer to what a cyber armed attack is. Right. Well, and and the things you've described also, while, while we think of them now with relations to cyberspace, you know, jamming other folks, radio, uh, radio transmissions, um, they, that's been around as long as there's been, as long as there's been wireless radio traffic. Right. Um, and so is, is jamming, is jamming voice of America, a cyber attack, which the Soviets did for, uh, for as long as they possibly could uh, during the Cold War, was that was that one long, extended cyber attack, or was that just uh, the way we play the game? I, mean, I wonder about that, but we'll hold on to that for a second because I want to then get to the other question, and that is, if there is a cyber attack, the the two things right that you would have to have is first of all, right, it would have to be a bad enough attack that you'd want to respond. You'd also have to know who you were supposed to respond against, and so that gets to the question of attribution, and. How does the problem of attribution in cyberspace influence our understanding of how we should handle cyber attacks? Attribution is a big issue and and nations are getting better at it. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, under international law, before you can use force and self-defense, you have to know who you're going to aim it at. It has to be targeted at the person that is attacking you. And so that's attribution is an issue. Uh, one of the reasons why it would help if the law is clearer is because in cyberspace, all the other things are more difficult than in conventional wars. Because generally, throughout history, when you when a state was a victim of an attack, they knew who the attacker was. And in modern history, it's been very easy for conventional large-scale conflicts you know, to understand who was conducting the attack. Ukraine didn't have any... Uh, misconceptions about who was attacking them. And in cyberspace, that's harder because the attack can come not from the state that's launching the attack, but from a third country. Uh, And there are many ways where they can hide who is the one that's responsible ultimately for the attack. And many cyber attacks are conducted not from the military of a nation state, but for some non-state group that may be fully supported or partially supported by a nation state. And so having all that confusion and then making the law confusing on top of it creates a lot of difficulty for nations. And so the law area is one that we could clear up relatively easily. Sure. So then the, then that that's the question of whose laws and what, what fora 
would be used in order to write those laws? Is this a problem for the UN? Is it a problem for the uh, International Court of Justice? Um, is it a problem for individual states reaching uh, treaty agreements among themselves? Um, where would where would one codify these kinds of questions? You listed the three big ones. Uh, the most obvious and clear is a treaty, right? Mm-hmm. The UN Charter is a treaty. The Geneva Conventions were treaties. The Hague Conventions on on warfare were treaties, and so nations could get together, have a convention, come up with an agreement, write down the agreement, and then that would be international law. Mm-hmm. The second way could be the International Court of Justice, uh, which is the the international court that's attached to the United Nations that resolves disputes among nation states that are members of the UN, and they are the ones that gave us some of the definitions for what a conventional armed attack is and what the definitions are in a, in a couple cases, one dealing with nuclear weapons and other dealing with Nicaragua versus the United States. And so that that could be it. The third one is state practice. And so under international law, if enough states act in a specific way, abide by particular customs, that can become international law called customary international law. And so if we wanted to, if a nation wanted to move the law forward, they could announce what they think the definition of a cyber armed attack is and start acting according with that. Mm -hmm. And if other nations, even without a treaty, declare agreement with that and act in accordance over time, that could develop the law on what a cyber armed attack is. Right. This um, it, I'm reminded of a comment that's, of course, on everybody's minds these days, right? That ultimately, right, you don't need you don't necessarily need written agreements with your friends, but you definitely need written agreements with your adversaries. And yet, how do you how do you get your adversaries to sit down and uh, put limits on themselves? And how do you put limits on yourself? Um, and so, have there been any efforts as of right now between the United States and potential adversaries about? Um, coming up with any kind of rules of the road for cyber activity. So the the first step was the Talon Manual I talked about, which Mm -hmm. is not any nations, but just a bunch of experts that thought what it should be. Mm -hmm. And and that has value in international law, what experts think. But uh, um, there have been two efforts by the United States not to get agreement with adversaries, but to declare what the U.S. believes is the view. And so, again, to start that process of state practice, Mm -hmm. the first was in 2015 when the United States Department of Defense issued their Law of War Manual, which was a a large book on the U.S. military's view on all the issues relating to the law of war. And a small part of that talked about what a cyber armed attack was. And the, the manual, the Department of Defense, agreed with Talon in part saying, a cyber attack could be an armed attack if its effects were similar to the effects of a conventional armed attack. However, they added a sentence, which makes it a little less clear. And that sentence said something close to other factors may also be relevant. So other factors doesn't really draw a clear red line. Right. In 2016, uh, the top State Department lawyer gave a speech that was meant to reflect State Department's view on this issue. And in that speech, Brian Egan gave a two-part test, which was similar but not exactly the same as the DOD test or as the Talon manual. The first mm-hmm. part was 
whether the effects of a cyber attack were kinetic or non-kinetic, meaning if something blew up or not. Right. The second part was whether that cyber attack is connected to an armed conflict. And he didn't go into detail about how that would be evaluated. But now we have, from 2016, we have a State Department definition, which is similar but not identical to the Department of Defense definition, which is similar but not identical to the international law experts in the Talon Manual. Right. And since 2016, we haven't had any movement forward on this. Well, and and uh, it's funny you say since 2016, 2016, a time when uh, when there was a great deal of cyber activity between the United States and its adversaries. Um, and we're back to that problem again, right? As you, you only need agreement when there are really things to disagree about. But if there are big disagreements, it's hard to reach agreement, which sounds circular because it kind of is. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this uh, the idea that, first of all, it makes perfect sense, right? If if a cyber attack takes place within the context of a larger military conflict, then we're just talking about, um, you know, there, there's much less ambiguity, and we're just talking about this as a as something that you do, like cutting the Atlantic cables in 1914, as soon as war broke out between uh, between uh, the United Kingdom and the Germans, right? That's the first thing the British did was send ships out into the Atlantic to pull up the, the uh, uh, telegraph cables and cut the Germans off, right? That's what you would do. But what if people, what if actors, whether they are states or whether they are violent extremist organizations or other non-state actors, what if they consciously choose to use cyber activity uh, instead of an aggressive kinetic action or an obvious kinetic action, um, hoping that they can essentially inflict damage and yet put the onus of response on the victim of their attack. So in other words, like dare the United States to to actually start killing people in response to the lights going out. Um, how do we how do we think about that? Um, within the United States, right? Because the obviously the, the the first state to make an aggressive kinetic military move uh, takes upon themselves uh, you know, a real risk, real risk, reputational risk, and also just a and a political risk, right? Are they going to be able to keep their friends with them if they decide, or will they be accused of overreacting? And so, how how should we understand the the special problem that cyber activity poses? for states that want to respond, but don't want to be seen to be overreacting. Well, and that's having that clear definition might help, Mm -hmm. would help Mm -hmm. because the international law is clear. The internet, those um, international court of justice opinions that I talked about stated clearly that if a nation is a victim of an armed attack, they, they don't have to respond in kind. You don't have to respond to a cyber attack with another cyber attack. You can respond with conventional forces. And so the not having a line here makes it very difficult, like you said, because if if a nation is the victim of a cyber armed attack, then they can respond with conventional forces. Mm -hmm. And so not knowing where that line is means the potential attacker and the potential victim have ambiguity about whether something is above or below the line. And that can that, that falls on both sides. Like you said, if you're a victim of a cyber attack, you may be seen as the aggressor if you respond with conventional forces. But on the aggressor side, 
let's say you want to conduct a cyber attack, but you absolutely do not want to start a war. You don't know how, where the line is that you can go. And so there, the ambiguity can lead to misperception, which might cause a war that wouldn't have started if we knew where the line really was, right, on either side. Yeah. Uh, and you could go even further if you're a victim of a cyber attack when there's ambiguity in the line and you're looking to start a war, having ambiguity would allow you to claim as a pretext that the cyber attack started the war. And then you could claim you're the victim when you're actually the ones wanting to start a war. And so having a clear legal standard can at least uh, avoid those misperceptions and at least make have very cogent arguments of whether something is worthy of a response in self-defense, whether it's an, an actual attempt at an armed conflict or right. not. So is there value then in unilateral declarations of if, if, if states or groups of states simply say, this is where we see this line to be, and we're going to behave accordingly, whether, whether you think so or not, states that aren't parts of this group. Is there value in doing that, or is that legally problematic? Yes, there is value. Mm-hmm. As it, uh, it can be the start of developing customary international law, or mm-hmm. to call by declaring something that have people disagree, they can respond, and that might lead you to coming to some sort of agreement. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think it's useful, particularly for the United States, is um, for deterrent effect. Mm -hmm. The United States can declare where our line is and let people know that that's a line they cannot cross because it's clear if they cross that, the United States believes they can respond with conventional forces in self-defense. And other nations may disagree where that line is, but at least the world would know which line the United States has drawn and would at least have an appreciation of the potential consequences if they cross that line. And would, you know, obviously we're all just, we're speaking in, in, on the basis of our learned, uh, our, our learned opinions here, and we don't, we're not uh, making policy as we speak, but what is, is the, uh, the reluctance of the United States to be very specific? Um, is this in part, would you see this as a, as, as a strategic choice? that right now at least ambiguity serves our purposes better than being too specific because we don't want to be locked into a response. That's possible. I'm, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, you know, I'm not the one that would make the decision <laughs> about whether it's ambiguous or not. Right. Right. Uh, I think that we just haven't pushed this forward yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the U S operates better when we know what the clear legal lines are and, Generally, not always, but generally, if there is ambiguity, the United States would assemble its multitude of lawyers to figure out where we think the line probably is and then govern our behavior accordingly. Right. Um, I think that the hesitance in part is because since cyber is so new coming and we're still developing it, all nations are still developing ways in which to conduct attacks. Mm-hmm. And so trying to define something that that we don't fully understand how it will be implemented is hard. I think that's part of it. And I think the second part of it is that we have yet to see a very clear and obvious cyber attack that might be above the line and that a nation wanted to respond in self-defense of the armed attack. We may have seen cyber attacks that are that significant, but 
the victim state didn't want to choose to respond in self-defense. And so, but that that's a big issue because it's not just individual self-defense. Another complexity to this is what happens if a NATO partner is a victim of a very significant cyber attack and they request assistance under Article 5, collective self-defense. The reason the Talon Manual is named Talon is because Talon Estonia was um, one of the first major victims of a very significant cyber attack right. conducted, attributed to Russia. Uh, and, you know, they were a NATO member when it happened in 2007. They did not ask for collective self-defense under Article 5. Um, but, but that creates a real issue if, if NATO members don't agree on what the line is, then that impacts our ability to defend each other. I should say so, right? That, that's why I was, I was wondering specifically about that. I was also thinking the, the flip side of this is um, the, uh, the use of, say, the, uh, the alleged, let's say, the alleged use of the Stuxnet computer virus to disrupt the Iranian nuclear program, um, something that there's a lot of people in a variety of countries patting themselves on the back for how successful that was. But if I were an Iranian official who said, you know, a foreign government used cyber means to disrupt a significant portion of my government, this is a, this is a hostile action. If I had, if they had chosen to respond kinetically to that, um, would we all be so proud of ourselves by how smart we were for coming up with that computer virus? I don't have an answer for that either. I don't expect you to have an answer, but I'm curious, what what do you think about that when you hear about those kinds of actions? Because that's precisely all of these issues that you brought up of attribution, right? The idea that it was, you know, a virus that happened to be on a, a thumb drive that they were just sort of hoping that somebody would stick into a computer and it would spread. You know, there's a l- bunch of layers of non-attribution in there, but that's a pretty serious attack on something, on, on a, a program that was kind of important to a sovereign state. Um, what do we do? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, the, how to analyze that, whether that could be an armed attack or not, is a great question. Uh, to yeah. me, it, given the lawyer answer is <laughs> if we had a clear definition of what a cyber armed attack was, then the, the nations that conducted the attack and the nation that's a victim of the attack would have a better framework to decide how to respond. Mm-hmm. So any, you know, international law sets the rules, but that doesn't mean nations don't break the rules, right? I mean, it, the UN Charter says you can't use force against another nation, and Russia did it to Ukraine. Right. I was going to say, right? like the UN said that in 1945, so, and nobody's attacked anybody ever since, right? So, right. I mean, this these these conflicts still happen, but we have a framework for which how to analyze it. And mm-hmm. so the law gives us the ability, and, and we, you hope... Right. In a perfect world, people would follow international law and we live in peace and tranquility forever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, nations act in their own self-interest in all kinds. But at least we have a, they can evaluate the consequences of their actions because they understand they're violating international law. And then they can evaluate, you know, the, the benefits or risks to them. If you take away the clear law, now you may have people making making bad decisions based on a misunderstanding of what other nations might do. And so international law can help inform strategic decision makers 
in, in determining what actions to take. And again, hopefully to take the correct actions. Um, but even if they're going to violate the law to have at least a, a better understanding of the potential consequences when they make their decision. Right. So there's an argument in favor of, you know, clear laws, clear lines, and they're not, they're not guarantees against, and we can have, we have clear laws against a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean those things never happen, but it does mean we have a clearer sense of what we should do in response to them. There are murders in the U.S. all the time, even though it's a crime. Right, right. Um, but hopefully the fact that there are punishments for those and those can be held accountable maybe result in fewer. And same with international law. See, that's a that's a very that's a, that's a very important point. And we're just about at the end of this conversation. And I, 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 uh, one thing that I'm I'm wondering about that I wanted to ask you, I could have asked you earlier, but I'll ask it to you now, is when, when people imagined war breaking out between Russia and Ukraine, for example, there was an assumption that this would be accompanied by massive cyber attacks of some sort. And yet we have not heard any stories, right? As of this, as of this recording at the end of March, 2022, we have not heard any stories of massive cyber attacks. Should the fact that these cyber attacks have not materialized or we haven't heard about them, should this have us thinking any differently about the about either state capabilities or about the danger of cyber, or um, is it just you know, we we don't know and but we we still need to be prepared for the possibility of massive cyber attacks? What do you think? There were some cyber attacks at the start of the conflict, and they have generally been referred to as cyber harassment, uh, mm -hmm. as you know, as a, a value judgment of the level of the attacks. And, and so we don't know whether or not it was because Russia didn't try to do significant cyber attacks or they did. And Ukraine learning from what happened in 2014 when there were very successful cyber attacks um, had hardened its defenses against cyber attack or mm -hmm. whether Russia is not capable of launching significant cyber attacks. We don't know. But I think we do know that, that cyber will be a part, cyber attacks will be a part of conflicts going forward. Right. Absolutely. And they're, they can be a, an integral part to launching attacks on other nations, either con in conjunction with conventional forces, or maybe someday they may be the sole attack. And so having a clear definition of where the line is that, that crosses from cyber harassment or cyber crime to an act of cyber war um, that can be responded to with conventional war is essential in order to, you know, helping nations govern themselves going forward. Well, and I think that's a that's a very sensible sensible point, and I think that's the point we'll uh, we'll have to end this conversation on. Patrick Walsh, thank you for this stimulating discussion about cyber attack and international law and how we should be prepared for it. Thanks for joining us today on a better peace. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all our programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. Um, and please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, which we hope you will do, because your subscriptions, your comments, your ratings and reviews help other people to find us. We're always interested to broaden this community for conversations just like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you next time. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. 
Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.